morning. If you would turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 26. Exodus chapter 26. I, um, I, I know I shared last week that I learned um, some cool sign language I think is just really powerful. I thought I'd share another piece with you. Um, Malachi's been so good helping me learn some things. Uh, but there's just one in the first song that we sang, All Hail the Power of Jesus' Name, where it says, crown him Lord of all. And the, the hand motions to this are, you see the symbolism in that? Taking the crown off your own head and putting the crown on Christ. Isn't that what it is to submit to Jesus? To say, I'm no longer king of my life. I'm no longer the Lord. Christ is. And that is what every single person will do on the last day. Every single king of this world, as Revelation says, will cast their crowns at his feet. Isn't that beautiful? That's the day that we long for, is to cast our crowns at his feet and say he is truly Lord of all. Well, Exodus chapter 26. And once you've arrived there, if you would, please stand for the reading of God's word. We'll be looking at chapter 26 specifically, but as we've been covering, there's another section in 36, 8 through 38, that covers the construction details of the tabernacle. But today we will just look, be looking at chapter 26 in particular. This is what it says, starting in verse 1. Moreover, you shall make the tabernacle with ten curtains of fine twisted twined linen and blue and purple and scarlet yarns. You shall make them with cherubim skillfully worked into them. The length of each curtain shall be 28 cubits, and the breadth of each curtain 4 cubits. And all, all the curtains shall be the same size. Five curtains shall be coupled to one another, and the other five curtains shall be coupled to one another. And you shall make loops of blue on the edge of the outermost curtain in the first set. Likewise, you shall make loops on the edge of the outermost curtain in the second set. Fifty loops you shall make on the one curtain, and fifty loops you shall make on the edge of the curtain that is in the second set. The loops shall be opposite one another. And you shall make fifty clasps of gold and, and couple the curtains one to the other with a clasp, so that the tabernacle may be a single whole. You shall also make curtains of goat's hair for a tent over the tabernacle. Eleven curtains shall you make. The length of each curtain shall be thirty cubits, and the breadth of each curtain four cubits. The eleven curtains shall be the same size. You shall couple five curtains by themselves, and six curtains by themselves. And the sixth curtain you shall double over at the front of the tent. You shall make 50 loops on the edge of the curtain, that is the outermost in one set, and 50 loops on the edge of the curtain, that is outermost in the second set. You shall make 50 clasps of bronze and put the clasp into the loops and couple the tent together, that is, that it may be a single whole. And the part that remains of the curtains of the tent, the half curtain that remains, shall hang over the back of the tabernacle. And the extra that remains in the length of the curtains, the cubit on one side and the cubit on the other side, shall hang over the sides of the tabernacle, on this side and that side to cover it. And you shall make for the tent a covering of tanned ram skins and a covering of goat skins on top. You shall make upright frames for the tabernacle of acacia wood. Ten cubits shall be the length of a frame, and a cubit and a half the breadth of each frame. There shall be two tenons in each frame for fitting together. So shall you do for all the frames of the tabernacle. You shall make the frames for the tabernacle, twenty frames for the south side, Forty bases of silver you shall make under the twenty frames, two bases under the one frame for its two tenons, and two bases under the next frame for its two tenons. And for the side, the second side of the tabernacle, on the north side, twenty frames, and there are forty bases of silver, two bases under one frame, and two bases under the next frame. 
And for the rear of the tabernacle, westward, you shall make six frames. And you shall make two frames, four corners on the tabernacle in the rear. They shall be separate beneath, but joined at the top, at the first ring. Thus shall it be with both of them. They shall form the two corners. And there shall be eight frames with the bases of silver, 16 bases, two bases under one frame and two bases under another frame. You shall make bars of acacia wood, five for the frames of the one side of the tabernacle and five bars for the frames of the other side of the tabernacle and five bars for the frames of the side of the tabernacle at the, re the rear westward. The middle bar halfway up the frame shall run from end to end. You shall overlay the frames with gold and shall make their rings of gold for holders for the bars. And you shall overlay the bars with gold. Then you shall, you shall erect the tabernacle according to the plan for that which you are shown on the mountain. And you shall make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. It shall be made with cherubim skilled, skillfully worked into it. And you shall hang it on four pillars of acacia overlaid with gold, with hooks of gold on four bases of silver. And you shall hang the veil from the clasp and bring the ark of the testimony in there within the veil. And the veil shall separate for you the holy place from the most holy place. You shall put the mercy seat on the ark of the testimony in the most holy place. And you shall set the table outside the veil. And the lampstand on the south side of the tabernacle, opposite the table. And you shall put the table on the north side. You shall make a screen for the entrance of the tent of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen, embroidered, embroidered with needlework. And you shall make for them... Uh, make for the screen five pillars of acacia and overlay them with gold. Their hooks shall be of gold and you shall cast five bases of bronze for them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. It is good and we need it. It is breathed out by you. God, the entire whole counsel that you've given us in your word. God, I pray, set our minds right on Jesus Christ who is the fulfillment of all these scriptures. Let us seek refuge in him, who, the one who has gone before, uh, before us as a forerunner into, into the most holy place, sacrificing himself on our behalf. Lord, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. If you were here last week, we covered 25, 10 through 40. And that detailed all the different, uh, different items that they were to build for the tabernacle. So we talked about the ark, and we talked about the mercy seat. We talked about the table for the bread of presence, and we talked about the lampstand. All these different items have significance. They symbolize uh, different features of their relationship with Yahweh now in the tabernacle. Now the question is, okay, you've made all these items. You've made all these pieces of furniture, furnishings, if you want to call it that. Now, where are these things supposed to go? That's the big question now. Okay, you've made these things, but where do they go? And that's what we get in Exodus 26. All, all 37 verses here are dedicated to the place in which these items are supposed to be put in. And that is the tabernacle. Or, as you see just from these, uh, just from these verses, curtains and veils and screens, this is more like a tent of anything, right? And so, this is what we're seeing today is that now the Lord gives instructions about the actual place these things are to be kept and where they're actually going to go to meet with God. And that is the tabernacle. And so hopefully what we'll get from this today, just by looking at two points from, from this text, is that hopefully our eyes can be drawn to this, that Christ has enabled and secured 
our access to God. That is what the tabernacle is about, accessing God and His presence. And so let's look at two points today. The first point is this, restricted access. Restricted access. The tabernacle has something to say about Israel's access to Him. Now, how many of you have gone camping before? And look, I'm not talking about glamping, you know, where you go out into the woods and you're in this really nice house with AC and TVs everywhere and, you know, you, 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 it's like a Ritz motel out there. That, no, that, or even RVing, right? I'm talking about like taking a tent out there with some pots and pans and you're out in the middle of nowhere and you have to, you know, take the poles and put them through the loops and everything, and then you, at the end of it, you have this funky-looking tent that's what you're supposed to sleep in and stuff like that. That, I'm, that's, that's the kind of camping. Anybody, anybody was like, that sounds like death to me, what I just described. Okay, yeah. Well, this is basically what uh, Israel is doing, right? This is, what, this is why the tabernacle is the way it is. It's a movable tent, that, that has poles and has curtains and has screens and has cloths that they're to set up. So if you go camping next time, real camping, and you set up your tent, you can think of it like, this is what Israel felt like, setting up the tent, walking to and fro and having set it up. That's, that's what it is. And so all these details we get, about, get in Exodus 26 is about God's instructions about building the place where God's presence is going to dwell among them. That's going to house the objects that are associated with God. And so, just looking at this, we won't cover, be able to cover every single verse in Exodus 26, but I just want to highlight a few things for you. Is that first, as, as we read, you can see the main components of this tabernacle. The main components are curtains and veils and frames and screens and poles and bases and all these things, is that that is what God is specifically telling them how to make it and what to do with it, basically. Is that all these are the structural components of the tent, of the tabernacle. The curtains are somewhat functioning as walls while the poles and frames are functioning as the structural supports of this thing. And what these walls do along with the veils and the curtains and the screens is that they cre create the exterior walls, right? But they also will enclose these sacred items, and then they make the compartments in this tabernacle, right? The most holy place and the holy place. It's even separating these things out. So all the walls and the curtains and the veils and the screens, it's creating the structure and compartmentalizing things within the tent itself, right? And you might ask, why would God be so detailed in Exodus 26 about how to build this tent where His presence is going to dwell? Why so many details? Why do we need to hear this? Why do we need to know this? You might be asking. Well, the details of the tabernacle and its components and compartments are reminiscent of just the precision that God has, right? God is very accurate and precise with detail. And he's precise in the detail of the tabernacle because he was precise in the detail of creation where he originally was going to dwell among his people. I think we would all agree in Genesis 1 and 2, God is very detailed in what he does, right? And where he is going to dwell among his people. 
So the God of creation who is detailed there is now coming and saying, I'm also going to be detailed with the place that I'm going to dwell among you here in this tabernacle. Right? And so, the same one who has precision in creation has precision in in the tabernacle. And the components in the structure of the tabernacle that's described in Exodus 26, there's two purposes. And I th- think we can draw these out from here. There's two purposes to this tabernacle and its structure. Is that first, it protects the things that are within it. right? The things that are going to be placed in here are going to be protected from elements and things like that. The items of Exodus 25 are sacred and should be given the utmost care, right? We saw that last week, thinking about how each of these things represents God's and symbolizes God's character and His nature and what they are to look forward to. So they are to be given the utmost care. And so it requires a tabernacle, right? The importance and value of what the tabernacle symbolizes requires its own dedicated space. I mean, we do this with museums, right? is that when we find a historical artifact or we find something that's of extreme value, we don't go put it in a gas station. You know, we don't put it in a truck stop. or Where do we put it at? We put it in a very secure location, right? In a museum that is, that is enclosed and that is probably under, under some form of glass, right? We take the great utmost care of these things. You just think about the security of the Hope Diamond right now, right? You think about how far you got to go in to see that thing. Is that it's enclosed in a space because we deem that valuable and worthy of honor and respect. And this is the same thing of why a tabernacle is required and needed. Because the things that are to be placed in here, particularly the ark where God sits enthroned, Israel is to value that, to see how it's to be held in the utmost care and honor. Because that is where God dwells among them. You'll see later in the Bible that David will realize this. He will realize the significance of God's presence with them, right? In 2 Samuel 7, verse 1, it says this, Now when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house made of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. David realizes this. He recognizes, is this right? That I live in such a nice house made of cedar, of beauty, and of grandeur? And yet, the ark of God, where our God sits enthroned, is in a tent. And that's when God, through the prophet Nathan, said, you should go ahead and build something. And that was the temple. Is that they recognize the value of these objects, which is why they need to be taken with the utmost care. And that is why a tabernacle is needed. But a tabernacle is also needed for a second reason. Not just to protect the items within, but to protect the people on the outside. You might be thinking, how does a tabernacle protect the people on the outside? Right? Well, the tabernacle, it restricts access to God's presence. Which is a good thing, Right? The tabernacle structure keeps one from unintentionally walking up, strolling up through the most holy place. That would be dangerous, right? You just think about this. Think about if, I mean, Chernobyl did happen, right? And 
Think about if they didn't block off anything at Chernobyl. Think about they didn't put up any warning signs. They didn't put up any barriers. They didn't put up, you know, anything. And people just were strolling along through Chernobyl, not knowing that they were basically, it was a death wish. But they didn't know. It was not protected. It was not restricted. They were walking unknowably, unintentionally, into a hot zone. So there was barriers put up around Chernobyl to restrict people's access to keep them safe. And this is what the tabernacle does for God's people so that they don't unintentionally walk up into God's presence. Because as we saw last week in Uzzah, to even touch the ark of God could be the last thing you ever do. So God creates these barriers. And that there's actually some interesting places in the Bible where this happens again. It already has happened in Exodus chapter 3 where Moses is walking near the mountain and the the burning bush, the angel of the Lord appears. And does anybody remember what the angel tells him to do? Take your sandals off. Why? You're standing on holy ground. Watch out. You are, you are coming near the holy presence of God. You know what another interesting place is, which I think is a play on Exodus 3? Joshua 5. If you remember this, is that Joshua is met by the commander of the Lord's army. And what does the commander of the Lord's army do? He's got a sword drawn. Does anybody remember what the commander of the Lord's army told Joshua? Take off your shoes, for the place that you are standing is holy ground. Two characters meet these biblical characters. Moses and Joshua say, you are coming too close. Stop. You are endangering your life because you are coming too close to the holy. Right? And so a tabernacle is created not just to protect the things within, protect the people on the outside. Right? Protect the people on the outside. Restrictions. And I think, I think we would all agree, parents included, maybe children do not agree, but restrictions are not always a bad thing, are they? Restrictions keep us safe and sometimes are for our good, right? And I would say this to you, church, believers in here, is that God's restrictions are not a burden to us, as 1 John 5, 3 says. His laws and commandments, they're not meant to be burdens to us, keeping us from goodness, pleasure, enjoyment. God's restrictions and laws and commandments are for our good and for our enjoyment because maybe God has kept you back from doing something. Maybe God has kept an opportunity away from you. Maybe God has stopped you from doing something. And guess what? Maybe He's doing that for your good. As hard as you're trying to push through and get there, maybe God's restrictions and keeping you back from something is for your good. Because here, restrictions in the tabernacle, restrictions at the burning bush and commander of the Lord's army, that is keeping His people safe. And it's a good thing. Maybe this morning, you're in that situation right now God, why won't you give me this? Why won't you let me go there? Why won't you let me have this? Maybe it's God keeping you back from something that would do you danger, not just physically, but spiritually. And you need to thank God for restrictions. Praise God. I know many of times that Wes McKay has prayed things that God did not want him to have, and he kept me from getting them. Thank you, Lord. 
Restrictions are good. The tabernacle protects the items on the inside and protects the people on the outside. And as we've talked about, as Chance has shared just two weeks ago, the tabernacle is a beautiful thing because it indicates that God wants to dwell with His people. It's a beautiful thing. He wants to dwell with His people. He wants to be among them. This is an amazing truth. But there is a flip side to this. On the flip side, the very nature of a tabernacle, a place that has curtains and veils and walls, and screens blocking access indicate something about Israel's relationship with God. The very nature of having a tabernacle that one cannot stroll into says something about Israel's relationship with their God. I think about, as many of you may have been, may have been alive during this time, but the Iron Curtain, right? The Berlin Wall. Is that this was a symbol of separation and restriction between East and West Germany that no one could go in and out. It was keeping people in, it was keeping people out. And it was a division, a separation, right? And this is similar to the tabernacle. The tabernacle does not have an open door policy here. You can't freely roam with unrestricted access into Yahweh's presence. There are limits and conditions and restrictions to Israel's access. Just think about this. Is that no one can enter into the tabernacle without offering sacrifices. And only priests can go into the tabernacle. And only the high priest can go into the most holy place once a year. Do you see the restrictions? There's, so, there's only limited people that can go in. And that even means that they have to do certain things even to go in. And there's even certain time constraints. There are restrictions in just having a tabernacle. Why, why don't they and we get unrestricted and unqualified access, absolute access to Yahweh? If you would, we're going to go on a Bible journey today, so I'm sorry, to, I'm going to ask you to flip your Bibles. If you would, flip your Bible to, to Psalm chapter 15. This question reigns kind of in the mind of the psalmist right here is why don't we get unrestricted access? Why don't we get this unqualified, absolute backstage pass to Yahweh's presence? What are the parameters? What are, are the conditions? What has to be met? And I, I'll do it. I'll do it. I'll do it. I'll buy the ticket so that I can go in all the way. Right? And here is what the psalmist says. You want to know what has to happen for you to get all-inclusive access to God's presence? psalmist says this, a psalm of David, O Lord, who shall sojourn into your tent, your tabernacle, meaning, hey, what, what's it going to cost me to get all the way in this thing? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? And he says this, he who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart and who does not slander with his tongue, and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, and whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. Who can enter into the tent? Any raising of hands in here. Based on these qualifications, 
This is why Israel doesn't get unrestricted free access, absolute access to Yahweh's presence because there is none who can go. None who can check out all these boxes. There is restrictions. I got a book that I brought and you can see this. It's a children's book. I'm not saying that children's books uh, are my only, uh, only tool that I use for sermon preparation, but this one was very helpful. It's called The Garden, the Curtain, and the Cross, and it talks about how Adam and Eve were exiled, and the refrain through the book is this, because of your sin, you can't go in. That's pretty catchy. Can we say that together? Because of your sin, you can't go in. That is the tabernacle. Because of your sin, they can't go in. They can't check off all these boxes in Psalm 15. Because of their sin, they can't go in. The tabernacle is intended to be like a mini Eden. It's like Eden in many ways, but it's still not Eden, right? In the garden, there are no walls or barriers or screens, right, or curtains. Adam and Eve has a perfect relationship with God, perfect intimacy with God. God is present with Adam and Eve, and they move freely throughout the garden where he dwells. Listen to this, Genesis 3.8. And they heard, that's Adam and Eve, heard the sound of the Lord God. Does anybody remember what it says? Walking in the garden in the cool of the day. This is explaining what Adam and Eve's experience was like with God. Freely in relationship with God. No barriers, no walls, no screens, no curtains, right? No tabernacle. Is that this all changed though in Genesis 3, did it not? It all changed. Humanity's relationship and access to Yahweh changed completely. Walls and restrictions are created to guard access to God's presence. The level of intimacy that they once enjoyed with God is no more. This is why there's an installment of cherubim in Genesis 3.24. We talked about that last week. They have no more absolute access. This is Genesis 3.24. He drove out the man and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. What more can be said, <laughs> I guess, how do you say keep out than cherubim with flaming swords, Right? Keep out. That's, that's what it was. The cherubim wore a keep out sign. Authorized personnel only. Nobody's getting in because, because of your, I can't hear you, what? You what? You can't, what? It's a children's book, y'all. Come on, man. Because of your sin, you can't go in. And this is exactly why you'll see in Exodus 26, starting in verse 1, and you'll see it later in verse 31, where there are cherubim skillfully worked into the veils and the curtains. Why would somebody, why would God instruct somebody to weave cherubim, these scary supernatural figures with flaming swords, into, into the curtains of the tabernacle? Because it's to remind them that humanity's access to God is not like it used to be in the garden. Even with the tabernacle, access is restricted. 
and that these restrictions, restricted access, protects the people from God's holiness, but it says something about their relationship, that things are not the way they used to be and are not the way they're supposed to be. The tabernacle is a gift. Don't, get, don't hear me wrong. It's a gift to God's people because it says God wants to dwell with them. But the curtains and the veils and the screens and the walls are reminders that we don't get to enjoy the full access to God's presence as we once did because sin has separated us from God's presence. That is humanity's story. Unbeliever, this morning, if you're in here, this is your story. Is that you have, by your own sin, you have alienated yourself from God. You have separated yourself from God's presence. And that may not seem like a problem to you, but it is a huge problem to you. You are unable to come into His presence. And this is a problem because only in God's presence will you find the fullness of joy, what the psalmist says. Only in God's presence will you find eternal, abundant life. Anywhere else in this world, you will not find either of those two things. That's why it's a big problem to you. You will not find fullness of joy and you will not find eternal, abundant life on this earth. You have been separated. We all have been separated by our sin. Believer this morning, maybe you feel you're in Christ, but you feel distant and separated in some sense. You feel the distance and maybe some proximity between you and God and your relationship. Maybe that, that's who you are this morning, is that you feel far away from God right now. Let me just say this. There are times in the life of, of the Christian where you can feel far away from God. Though you're still presently in a position with Christ, you can feel far away from God. You don't have that level of intimacy maybe as you used to have with the Lord. Let me say this. What the Bible says is there are reasons for that. Sometimes our own sin, unrepentant sin, can be a barrier and can cause distance between us and God in our intimacy. Just listen to the words of the psalmist. Psalm 66, 18. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. The psalmist is saying, if I had enjoyed and persisted and continued in sin, the Lord would not have heard my cry. Isaiah says a very similar thing in Isaiah 59, 1-2. Listen to this. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened, that it cannot save, or His ear dull, that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden His face from you so that He does not hear. Your own sin can be the reason why you feel distant from right, right now with God and your relationship. It causes you to think, right now, why am I not feeling close with God right now? Why am I not feeling the intimacy that I once had? Let me tell you this, it's not because God has changed even one ounce. God has not changed His relationship to you, but we change ours towards Him a lot because of our sin. Sin we don't want to give up. Sin we want to grasp on, hold too tight because we think it brings us some amount of joy when we're actually forsaking eternal, endless joy in Him, in His presence. First Peter brings this up too, talking about husbands and wives and that Husbands are to treat their wives in such a way 
so that their prayers would not be hindered. Think about that. Again, another way that says our prayer life can even be hindered towards God because of our sin. This morning, you might be an unbeliever, completely alienated, separated from God. Or you might be a believer here this morning in Christ, but by your own willingness to give in to sin, you've created distance between you and God. What can you do about that? What can you do about this separation? Let me say this, there's nothing you can do, but there is one who can. Point number two is this. Access granted. November 9th, 1989. Anybody know of a significant event on that day? I wasn't born yet. But on November 9th, 1989, a significant event occurred in world history. The Iron Curtain and the Berlin Wall fell. And it's over. There was rejoicing in the streets. Families and friends were reunited that had been separated by this wall and this barrier and this curtain that had been created between two countries. It brought great rejoicing, great excitement that this had happened. Something that they had lived so long with, a division. That same access that they had the enjoyment they had to access one another again and be united. How do we get that access to God now since we've separated ourselves? How do we get that freedom and that enjoyment and that excitement to be in the presence of God? Let me just say this and just be very clear. Only through Christ Jesus can you be united to God through faith in Him. Christian, only through Christ and trusting in Him can your relationship with Him be restored to full intimacy again. Only through Christ. And this is what the Bible tells us. We're, again, we're going to flip through the Scriptures again to see this. If you would, go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 27, looking at verses 50 through 51. Is that how is this relationship, these separation removed, and how is the relationship restored? How can this curtain that's been created in Exodus 26 that will later be perpetuated in the building of the temple, how can this be, how can we have access to God with this still up? Well, here's what happens. In Matthew 27, 50-51, it says this, And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up His spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. At the death of Christ, God supernaturally, miraculously shows that there is now a change in the relationship. Now people can have free, no there's now an open-door policy with the Lord if you come through Christ Jesus. At, at the death of Christ, the curtain is no more. And anybody who repents and trusts in Jesus can have a relationship with Him. Turn to Hebrews 10, 9 through, 19-25. We've already read this together, what, what Caleb read for us. But the author of Hebrews brings up the curtain again in Hebrews 10, 19-25. And I'll just read it for you since you've already heard it. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, can you, can you think about, put yourself in an Israelite's shoes in the ancient day and say, you know what? You can have confidence to walk into the most holy place and you aren't going to die. 
You know what they would say to you? You are insane. Go first. You try it out. That would be insane for somebody to say it like this. Who could go into the most holy place? And not just go into the most holy place, but go confidently. Right? Who could do that? It says this. You could go in because of this. By the new and living way that He opened, that's Christ, for us through the curtain. That is, through His flesh. Christ opened up the way through His own flesh, sacrificing Himself for us to confidently go into God's presence. Confidently. No fear of rejection. No fear of death. Hebrews 6, 19-20. You want to flip a couple pages over there. It says this. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. We all know what sure and steadfast anchors are. Heavy anchors. It means it can keep a ship stuck and stable, immovable. And this is what the author of Hebrews says. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. A hope that enters into the inner place. That's the most holy place. The curtain. Behind the curtain. Where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. Having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, we can have confidence and hope to enter God's presence because Christ has already gone before us as a forerunner, as our great high priest. Anybody know what a fullback is? The fullback has a really dirty job in football. The fullback runs through the hole first, takes all the blows so the running back can run after him and enjoy all the praise and glory of scoring the touchdown. But the fullback, he got to take all the blows. Jesus, I'm, I, I don't I hate to make this a you know analogy of Jesus Christ is our fullback. Uh, I don't want to say it like that. But Jesus Christ has gone on ahead before us, has taken the blow on our behalf, so that we could come in behind him and enter into the holy place confidently with the greatest hope and assurance that we will be accepted by God through him. Christ's death reunites and restores our relationship to God, but also it restores our relationships and unites us together. If you'll turn to Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. We all know Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 by heart and everything that says this. Let me tell you this, 11 through 22 is pretty good itself. Is that Paul is making the point, using temple and tabernacle language to say, what Christ did on the cross is not only open up a new way for you to go in and be united to God, but also has enabled you to be a spiritual temple so that you can be united to one another. Ephesians 2.11-22 says this, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. So there's two different parties, the circumcision and the uncircumcision, Jews and Gentiles, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility between us. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that 
he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have what? Access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, that's tabernacle and temple language, being joined together, grows into a holy temple into the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Listen to this church, is that Christ, when he came, he did not just give us access and entry into the presence of God through his death and resurrection, but he also has united whatever divisions that we can create between ourselves in here, whatever separations we might say, well, I don't like him, I don't like the way she thinks, I don't, I don't like where they live, I don't like what they drive, whatever, whatever random things we might create between us, Christ has said, I've destroyed all of them in my death and resurrection by re- reuniting you to God and uniting one to another. This morning, cross point, the reason that we can have any unity of the Spirit and the bond and peace is here is because Christ has gone behind the veil for us. And this morning, next time we are tempted to create division in the body, next time we're, we're tempted to create divisiveness, be divisive, or be tempted to set up walls and boundaries and separations, remember this. What has Christ done for us? What has Christ done for us? He's broken down those walls of hostility. Christ not only has done that, Christ has secured our unhindered access to God forever. Forever. In a place where there is no need for curtains, no need for walls, no need for barriers, no need for screens. There's no need for a temple at all. We will need no temple because He will we will have God and the Lamb. Listen to this from Revelation eleven nineteen. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of His covenant was seen within His temple. You need to believe that. This is what John's saying. It's seen. Everybody gets to see it. That's, there's no way you get to see it in the tabernacle. It's so covered by veils and curtains and screens. Revelation 21, 22, and 25 says this. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God the Almighty and the Lamb, and its gates will never be shut, and there will be no night there. Christian, you have access right now to the presence of God, because Christ has gone through the veil, and one day we will have complete, unhindered, unfettered access to God in the new heavens and new earth where we will be in the fullness of His joy complete. This morning, we have the greatest hope. So when, when we are tempted to worry, tempted to fear, tempted to give in, remember, what is the anchor and hope of our soul? That Christ is the forerunner who has gone behind the veil. And if He's done that, there is nothing that can shake us. This morning, You might be here and you say, I don't have any access to God. Never had access to God. This morning, you don't have to leave with restricted access. Christ has accomplished that. This morning, if you're here 
you're a Christian, and you say, my proximity to God has felt distant in a while. You don't have to leave that way. Christ has gone behind the veil for us. Let me pray. God, thank you that there is nothing on our own that we can do, but Christ has done it all for us. Gone as our forerunner behind the veil, sacrificed himself as our great high priest. Praise God. Lord, I pray right now if there is any sin that lies within us, whether that be rebellion or unbelief or just the sin of, of worry, the sin of lust, the sin of anger, whatever it may be, that we would kill it so that we can have greater intimacy with you through Christ, oh God. Lord, we love you and we praise you. It's in Christ's name. Amen.